Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. of the press isn't just important to democracy, it is democracy. We're here to hold elected leaders accountable. Yeah. want to thank all of you out there for joining us. What do you get when you cross the 1918 pandemic with the Great Depression? You get what we're living through now, a perfect storm of misery that continues to ravage our nation and rob us of our physical as well as our economic health. I'm Jane Whitney. On this episode of the Conversations on the Green podcast, we'll tackle part one of that equation. We'll focus on finding a prescription for an economic recovery that will benefit all Americans. To help us do that, I'm honored to speak with three very distinguished guests. Nobel laureate and New York Times columnist Paul Krugman, CEO and founder of the Union Square Hospitality Group, Danny Meyer, and Nobel laureate and professor at Columbia University, Joseph Stiglitz. I'm so grateful to have them with us, and I want to let you all know so you understand there's no disrespect. We negotiated a first-name basis with everybody for this conversation. We recorded this session live during a virtual town hall on September 20th, 2020. First, I want to go back to where we were before the pandemic hit. And Joe, I'm going to start with you. Mr. Trump famously evoked one of his key themes at a recent town hall in Philadelphia, namely that despite the records of the Eisenhower and the Clinton administrations, he had created the greatest economy in the history of the United States, even more than that, the greatest economy in the world. Is he right? Uh, no. Uh, you know, uh, the president is, has an enormous record uh, of lying and being mendacious. And this is just another example. Uh, I don't think we should expect any better of him. He, 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 he's not a student of history and he's not a student of economics. Uh, the fact is that it is not even as good an uh, economy in many dimensions as we had under Obama. Of course, he's benefiting from the recovery that began uh, under Obama after the terrible mess that we had uh, after the onset of the Great Recession uh, in 2008. Uh, but if you just look at a simple criteria like job creation, there was faster job creation under the Obama administration than there was uh, than there has been under the Trump administration prior to the pandemic. Of course, uh, we're putting aside the what's happened since then, but even before that, things weren't great. Let me talk about one other statistic: uh, How well has the average American done? Uh, we're still. Uh, not as well off, uh, at, or the, the the growth that we've had uh, since um, uh, the last four years doesn't bring us uh, really back to where we were 
30, 40 years ago. Let me just give you one number. Uh, the real wages uh, at the bottom, adjusted for inflation, today are at the same level that they were 65 years ago. That's not a great economy. And let me, one final statistic. You know, the health of an economy and of a society is partly assessed by the health of the citizens. You're not going to have a healthy labor force if you don't have healthy citizens. And this, again, going back before the pandemic, life expectancy in the United States before the pandemic was lower than it was in 2015. That's not a mark of a great economy or a great society. You had written a piece back before Mr. Trump was installed, talking about the fact you were concerned that he was just going to resurrect the um, toolbox of, of Reaganomics and he was going to cut taxes and increase military spending and slash regulations. And that's precisely what he did. And yet he has gotten high marks from real people on the economy. How do you explain that disconnect? Uh, I don't have a, a really good explanation and maybe Paul will have uh, something to say about this, but let, in, in, in terms of uh, his resurrecting that old toolkit, uh, what is true is there was a tax bill in December 2017. Uh, it was a tax cut for the billionaires and for the corporations. But the reality is that when that bill is full, what would have been fully implemented in 2026, a majority, the vast majority of Americans in the middle would have seen a tax increase. Now, we did get a little bit of a sugar high from the enormous injection of money into the economy. That's what Keynesian economics would have predicted. Not a surprise. But what is so, uh, actually, how quickly it, it attenuated. So that the forecast, again, before the pandemic for 2020, was really anemic growth, uh, under 2%. And that in the presence of a $1 trillion deficit, the largest deficit that we've had in peacetime, not in recession. And many people worried with that size of a deficit, would we be well prepared if there were another problem down the line? And of course, we now have another problem down the line. That is the pandemic. Well, I'm going to turn to Paul because, Paul, you also wrote you wrote a column called Gross Domestic Misery that actually hit on the point that Joe just made, which is that you can look at all kinds of stats and data. But fundamentally, what really matters is whether an economy is helping people to live better lives. Still, by that standard, there are people, again, who gave Mr. Trump um, even continue to this day to give Mr. Trump high marks for the economy. Do you have an explanation for that? Yeah, I think there are two biases that play in here. One is the persistent belief that uh, uh, rich people uh, must know how to run an economy. Uh, it's a, that uh, that people who are rich or people who have even people who have been successful uh, at managing businesses are good at running economies. When in fact, it's just a, it's a very different thing. Even genuinely great businessmen which is not Trump is not, but even people who are genuinely great business people, um, the, whole, the, the kinds of things you need to do to make a whole economy run are very different. But people look at somebody and say, oh, he's rich. He must understand money. 
therefore he must be good at economics. And the other is something, you know, where do people talk about the economy most in the, in the news media? They talk about it on CNBC. They talk about it in uh, Bloomberg. They talk, you know, and business media uh, are their audience is primarily business people, uh, people who, who like tax cuts for the wealthy. Um, and so they, uh, without it being necessarily a deliberate political slant, they, they always tend to report more favorably on Republicans than on Democrats. You know, the, this incident where Jim Cramer called Nancy Pelosi uh, a crazy lady, uh, you know, the sanest person in American politics. Um, would he have done that to a Republican, even though there are a number of genuinely crazy people and even an economic policy team of the Trump administration? So I think between the, the bias of business reporting and just this general misperception that rich people have the answers to economic problems, there's an inherent bias towards thinking that uh, Republicans know what they're doing. And of course, Trump was lucky. He, he inherited an economy that was uh, in the having the, the longest, most stable re recovery we've had for ages. And he had three years, three years of miraculous good luck of not nothing really bad happening, which is an unusually long period. And then, of course, when something bad did happen, he probably mishandled it. And yet, I'm going to go to a tweet from former Labor Secretary Robert Reich that summarizes what he thought the state of the economy was before the pandemic. When he said, when you have a home health aid worker making $24,000 a year and a restaurant cook making $27,000 a year and a cashier making $22,000 a year and Jeff Bezos can make $120 billion in one day. And I looked this up. He actually did that on July 20th of this year. Um, the, the economy is broken. So even when people thought it was going well before the pandemic, there are people who think it was broken. Were you one of them, Paul? I'm not sure that broken is the right word. It's, it's an economy that was delivering GDP. Um, you know, the, the, uh, the money was flowing. Um, the total number of jobs was pretty good. Uh, what it wasn't delivering was a decent life. And that's what basically comes back to where Joe's is. I mean, if you look at, you know, comparing the United States with other advanced countries over the past several decades, um, we have done somewhat, and we've basically been on track, but, you know, we're, we're, we continue to have high GDP per capita compared with other advanced countries, though most of that is just because they take vacations and we don't. Um, but there's this steadily growing gap in life expectancy. So you take an economy, I, I like the comparison with Italy, which actually is an economy, a, a country that actually does have a screwed up economy, which has actually done very poorly in terms of GDP over these past 20 years. And yet, um, and back in the 80s, the Italians had the same life expectancy we do, uh, did. Uh, now they live four and a half years longer than we do. So something, America is, is, is pretty good at generating profits, pretty good at generating GDP. Um, but it's really terrible at generating a decent quality of life or even keep, at keeping people alive. At this point, I want to go to somebody who's very good at generating hospitality, and that's Danny Meyer, who um, was credited 35 years ago with revolutionizing the hospitality industry by serving up everything from fine dining to shakes and burgers. Danny, how is your business going before the pandemic hit? 
Before the pandemic hit, we were we were moving along, but roughly the same way that I think we just heard that the U.S. economy was was moving along, which was fine, but not great. And I would actually compare our industry to the the kind of um, preconditioned um, elderly uh, person pre-COVID, which is that the preconditions we had may have actually done us in as an industry, even without COVID. But if you get a little exposure to it, you're seeing it wipe us out right now. 10%, anywhere between 10 to 15% of restaurants in the United States have already gone out of business now. And that number, without any question, is going to go up dramatically uh, for, for a handful of reasons. Number one is that uh, until and unless uh, Congress comes together again to pass some type of uh, economic relief for workers, there is going to be a completely displaced uh, workforce that's suffering quite a bit. And then secondly, until and unless there is some type of relief for the industry, uh, which which is highly unlikely because it's such a disaggregated industry. The, the restaurant industry in America, with depending on who you talk to, anywhere between 600,000 and a million restaurants, uh, has more workers when it's at peak form than the auto industry and airline industry combined. But because I had no you idea. Can't wow. Name, yeah. Because you cannot put your arms around it, i.e., there is the city, Detroit, that relates to autos, and Seattle and, and others relate to airline travel or airline uh, manufacturing. It's almost impossible for this industry to have the kind of voice it should have on behalf of the people who work there um, and on behalf, obviously, of really the, the social and financial fabric of any town USA. Want to talk about what happened when mid-March somebody flipped a switch, everything changed, life as we knew it changed, and then by May we had started the worst three-year, three three-month slide into economic devastation, wiping out 30 million jobs and nearly five years of growth. And Danny, since this show today is ultimately about people and their lives and how the economy affects it, you had to close. You closed your restaurants. You laid off. Now, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, 80% of your workforce, which was about 2,000 people. And More. I can't even imagine that, I, I mean, the word nightmare isn't really even strong enough to describe what that sounds like to me. What was, how, how would you describe what you went through? Well, as I told someone, it would have been a nightmare if I could have actually fallen asleep. It, it, was, it was a disaster. I mean, I've spent 35 years uh, building up an organization starting with Union Square Cafe in 1985 and, uh, you know, on to many other restaurants thereafter. And it just, it felt awful. It, it became clear immediately to us that we would need to close. We actually closed our restaurants before it became a mandate in New York because we could see where this was going. And we said, look, we're going to put safety above all. And as, as you mentioned at the top of the show, this is a, it's truly a confluence of a health crisis and an economic crisis. Um, and, you know, the, the fits and starts that have happened uh, week by week, uh, where our industry and, and every industry truly is waiting for some kind of leadership to end the, end the 
the health crisis so that we can get back on some kind of financial footing. Um, and, it, and it hasn't come. And so you have to make decisions for the long haul. And the decision that we've made in our organization has been if we had to lay off 3,000 people, which is what it was, and the advice I got from from people who I respect a lot was do it once, but don't do small cuts many, many times uh, because this will be over. Everybody seems to believe that, that this is not the thing that's going to end the world or end our economy. And when it is over, you've got to be around and you've got to be solvent or you cannot get back to being an excellent employer. So the first steps we took after laying off that many people were to set up a 501c3. We called it the Hugs Fund, an anagram for USHG, Union Square Hospitality Group. And one thing that I feel really good about is that thanks to really, really generous uh, guests who, who contributed, who bought gift certificates uh, to our restaurants, who, who participated in auctions, and a bunch of us gave our compensation to the fund as well, we've been able to raise just shy of $2 million and then grant out about one point. Eight million of that to team members who who have been sorely in need. Now the the real push that's going to happen next, and I I think people should get ready for this, is that landlords and developers who didn't ask for this any more than anybody else have in most cases not been paid since March or even before, because restaurants haven't had any income whatsoever, and in fact restaurants cannot afford to pay because even with entrepreneurial activities like takeout and delivery and sidewalk dining, which actually just loses you more money, restaurants are still not able to pay their rent. So the eviction notices that you're going to see going out in the next handful of weeks, um, combined with the end of extended unemployment insurance on behalf of, of workers, is going to bring this to a head in a lot of cases. And it's kind of scary because we could all see a pretty uh, negative cycle, especially for cities who have depended so much on restaurants uh, for the for their economy. Joe, uh, there are people calling this the lost year, and and Danny makes the point that without leadership and without a plan, uh, the uncertainty is a killer for everybody. It's a killer for the financial markets. It's a killer for for employers, everybody. If you could wave a magic wand right now and prescribe a recovery plan right now. Nothing is happening. There's nothing on the horizon. We see no second, you know, second stimulus happening. Uh, even though the House has passed one, it's sitting in in uh, the Senate. What would you do? Well, there there are two things that I think uh, are really important. One, you have to have a comprehensive agenda. Uh, the second thing is uh, you have to provide assurance, uh, deal with the risk. Uh, so let me talk about comprehensive first. Uh, the point is we haven't done anything about helping the state and local governments. One of the biggest sources of increase in unemployment are uh, the state and local governments. They have balanced budget frameworks, their revenues are plummeting and they have to lay off people just at the time when they ought to be hiring people, uh, we need more teachers given the way we have to do teaching. Uh, we need more people to care for the uh, large number of people who are sick. Uh, our, our state and local governments are at 
the forefront in dealing with the whole host of education, welfare, health care problems, and no help for them. Second um, example is unemployment insurance. Uh, you know, I, I was going to begin by answering your question. I wouldn't start from here. Uh, back in February, uh, I said one of the things you ought to do is design programs to keep people connected with their jobs. Denmark did this. New Zealand did this. It's not uh, uh, rocket science. We failed. And the main reason for the failure is lack of leadership in Washington by the administration. They were talking about a payroll tax cut, uh, you know, something that uh, doesn't address the real issues facing the unemployed. Uh, you know, they were often left field. Uh, and so there was a Congress had to, especially in the House, had to pushed back against a, a crazy administration. So what you got was something that uh, resulted in the spike in unemployment in the United States being so much larger than in other countries. But now the Senate doesn't want to provide additional help for the unemployed. And that means that there's going to be devastation to household balance sheets, they're not going to be able to spend money, and that means they're not going to be able to uh, buy, buh, buy uh, uh, other goods and services. They're going to hurt all the other industries. It's a vicious downward circle for the entire economy. So the, corp the, the business balance sheets are going to be hurt. So the, the, as I say, the two things we need is a comprehensive agenda and assurance that it's, the government is going to be providing money as long as the pandemic lasts. And, you know, God willing, uh, the pandemic will be over uh, uh, overnight. Uh, that's what we were told back in March. Uh, nobody believes that. Uh, but what is really important is that there be uh, this assurance of assistance for as long as the pandemic lasts. Otherwise, people take strong precautionary actions they saved, savings rate in the second quarter was 25%, a total record, and that contributes to the weaknesses in our macroeconomy. Paul, do you agree that, um, that obviously leadership is a key thing here, but you've talked about the fact that we're going to have a second wave of, of economic pain that's going to essentially be self-inflicted because this wasn't handled well from the get-go. And this recovery, if you want to call it that, V-shaped, Q-shaped, K-shaped, whatever shape it is, is really bypassing those at the, at the bottom. Um, it is a recovery that has left some communities devastated and others totally unscathed. It's, we've got record amount of food insecurity, domestic violence, the evictions that, that Joe was talking about. Um, what would your prescription be at this point? Well, Let's try and put similar. things back on track. Yeah, pre pretty similar to what Joe is saying. I mean, the, we are not, we're not going to be able to get GDP and employment back up to pre-pandemic levels until the pandemic is over. And uh, so a lot of what we need to do is we need to be able to find a way to live with um, a lot of restrictions on business. We're not going to go back to, uh, 
to full occupancy of indoor dining. You know, a whole lot, a whole lot of things cannot be done right now. But we have, we're a wealthy country. We have the, the resources to make this tolerable. Um, and let me say, um, if you, uh, the first four months of this thing, uh, there was a kind of a miracle in March. The, the, the legislation that went into effect had a lot of holes in it and also had some bad stuff in it. But overall, the, uh, the CARES Act, which included paycheck protection, um, enhanced unemployment benefits, was relative to what you might have expected. Uh, for given America's pretty bad track record on these things, was was surprisingly decent. Uh, what seemed to happen, I think, was basically that that uh, Democrats uh, put together uh, a plan that was actually pretty decent, and Republicans were so completely at sea that they had no idea what else to propose. It was kind of a, it's like the old joke: we must do something. This is something. Therefore, we must do it. Um, and for until the end of July, we were providing pretty generous benefits. Um, we were providing some incentives for businesses to retain their payrolls, though not nearly enough. Um, but all of that fell off a cliff, um, and nothing has replaced it. And we never did anything for state and local governments, which is where the, the pinch is going to come. So ideally, I mean, the, the, the House did pass a bill, the, the HEROES Act in May, which was aspirational. It was bigger than anything anyone thinks is likely to happen, but was the right kind of thing. It was... Um, to, we have to keep a lot of things somewhat suppressed. Some always use the phrase, we have, a, a suppression of the U.S. economy is inevitable as long as the pandemic is out there. There are a lot of things we can't do. We can't do a lot of business as usual. But it doesn't have to be a depression. It doesn't have to spill over into other things. We don't have to have a situation where we're laying off hundreds of thousands of school teachers and where we're shutting down manufacturing plants because people can't can't afford to buy basic stuff. So, it, you know, it's not, not, not hard at all to devise. Uh, in fact, again, the, the, uh, that, that House bill wasn't, was clearly bigger than Nancy Pelosi or anybody else expected to be the final deal, but, but it was but, clearly had all the things you need. But they, so, and people reported who were getting that extra $600 a week that for the first time in their lives, actually, that, that translated into economic security for them until, of course, they pulled the plug on that program uh, at the end of July and nothing has really happened to uh, effectively replace it. So one of the other things that was, was part of stimulus was the Paycheck Protection Program, I think it's called. And Danny, you were in the headlines at one point because you turned back $10 million of uh, PPP loan money. It was at a time when there was some, some press about the fact that some of the smaller businesses, the mom and pop businesses, weren't getting the access because they didn't have the connection at the, at the banks. And so you turned it back. And then uh, you wound up getting later on $11 million of loan money. And you, um, you absolutely explained it because it's about the people in your business. Ex tell, tell people how you explained it. Well, I'll start by agreeing with what Paul just said, which is that it was breathtakingly good that for the first time, certainly in our memory, that both sides of the aisle came together and got something done quickly with the whole CARES Act. And it was a good thing uh, with respect to the extended unemployment insurance 
the PPP program was really a disaster. And I, and I can explain why. It was a disaster in terms of how it was marketed. It was marketed for small business only, and yet it was written so that if you had fewer than 150 employees at any one restaurant, you completely qualified for it. And so the other thing that made it a failure, certainly for our industry, the restaurant industry, was that the loans would, would be loans and they would be payable, um, but they would be forgivable if you would spend them within, uh, I believe it was eight weeks uh, of having received it. Well, the restaurant industry was not permitted to open within eight weeks. And so if you, in fact, got the loans, you were on the hook to pay them back, uh, or you could have hired people to do nothing, but you couldn't hire people to do nothing because they were making more money with the extended unemployment insurance without putting themselves in harm's way as an essential worker. And so while it was great that this came about, it did not really work for our industry. Uh, now, with respect to what we did, um, Shake Shack is a separate public company from my business, Unisware Hospitality Group. But in fact, Shake Shack had qualified and applied for a loan. Uh, and as luck would have it, the very, very day that uh, Shake Shack received the loan and disclosed it as a public company was the very day that the Treasury Department made it clear that they had not adequately funded PPP and that there were many, many businesses who either because they didn't have the know-how or they didn't have the banking connections or maybe didn't even have a bank uh, had not succeeded. And it made it look, this was on a Friday morning, it made it look as if a company like Shake Shack had actually elbowed others out of the way, which is certainly the last thing that Shake Shack would have wanted. So that weekend, the, the board of Shake Shack got together and said, let's return the loan. And Shake Shack became the first public company uh, to do so that then set off quite a wave. Uh, it certainly was not my intent ever to become a poster child for, for this program. Uh, but when Shake Shack did return the loan, um, the CEO of the company, uh, Randy Garuti and I, I'm the chairman of the company, wrote a letter on LinkedIn and made it very clear that that uh, we fully intended not only to return the Shake Shack loan, but that it, especially because Shake Shack is a public company that had access to raising money in the capital markets, which it did. It went out and sold some of its stock to raise money in the capital markets. Uh, my company, Union Square Hospitality Group, is a private business. And I will tell you that uh, what you're saying is basically two different stories going on in the restaurant industry right now. Sadly, many, if not most restaurants, spent their PPP funds restaurant by restaurant at a point when they would be forgivable. And those people have now been hired. Many are now being laid off again. Watch what happens in the macro economy. Mm -hmm. And it all depends on how long it takes. What we chose to come back, what we've chosen to do is to keep our loans as long as we can, uh, not forgivable. We'll, we'll pay them back. Uh, it's a very low interest rate, which was a good thing. And we're basically putting most of our businesses to sleep until we get to the point where we can hire back people 
and we can do enough business so that we don't have to lay them off for a second time thereafter. And we're just, you know, it's it's a game right now where you're you're rooting uh, to see a, a sped up consumer confidence to come back um, against what your balance sheet is. And and by the way, if if I could have a a hand in, in some type of macro public policy, one big advance that we did not have access to back in March or April or May, but now we do, is rapid testing. And I think that if if government could provide and or even a public-private partnership where we could have the kind of big businesses that rely upon the hospitality industry being busy, credit card companies um, and, and the like, to sponsor a, a, a full supply of rapid tests where every employee who comes back to work would have a test, say, every two weeks, the amount of confidence that would give workers to come back to work, employers that it was a safe environment, and I think ultimately guests that when I go to this restaurant, I know that that it's a very safe environment, is going to get us from 25 to 50% and ultimately back to 100% indoor dining, which is going to be crucial. Uh, you know, February in Connecticut is not a particularly good month to be eating outdoors. That was Danny Meyer, and you're listening to the Conversations on the Green podcast. We're going to take a brief break, and we'll have more conversation with our guests when we return, and questions from our virtual audience, too. Stay with us. You're listening to the Conversations on the Green podcast. I'm Jane Whitney. This conversation was recorded on September 20th, 2020. Our guests are two Nobel laureates in economics, Paul Krugman and Joseph Stiglitz, and restaurateur Danny Meyer. We have a lot of people on the chat asking questions. We've had a lot of you submit questions in advance. We're going to be taking phone calls at some point. But first, let me at this point go to our video questions. And we're very excited because we have with us for the very first time, the First Lady of Connecticut. I'm Annie Lamont, a lifelong venture capitalist and first lady of Connecticut. One of the many lessons from COVID is control your own supply chain. This time it was masks and gowns. Next time it will be antibiotics and precious metals to power the 21st century. If environmental and labor standards discourage the relocation manufacturing to the U.S., what would you do to level the playing field and bring back manufacturing? I'm going to go to Joe on this one because, Joe, you at one point had made a fairly, I don't want to call it dire prediction, but in terms of manufacturing jobs, what do you think the outlook, you're shaking your head, what do you think the outlook is for bringing back certain manufacturing jobs? Well, let me put it in the broad perspective. Uh, Globally, manufacturing jobs are declining, and it's a result of our success in R&D, technology, uh, we can get the same output with fewer and fewer workers. So yes, we will bring back some manufacturing to the United States, there'll be what's called onshoring, Uh, but much of the manufacturing that's going to be coming back is going to be done by robots. Uh, It won't be the jobs 
in the same places that were lost. It won't be the same skills that uh, uh, skill sets. Um, so there will be a little manufacturing employment created, but it won't solve the major problems that we've had with deindustrialization. So I think um, we have to think about what kind of economy we want for the 21st century. And that's where I think the model Build Back Better really fits in. Uh, one of the things I was going to say in answer to one of your earlier questions, what is the agenda going forward? Part of the agenda is we have to make sure that the money that we spend serves dual purpose. That is to say, it helps rebu rebuild our economy. It helps put us in a better position once the pandemic is under control for us to recover quickly. And Paul is absolutely right. Uh, and Danny, that the first priority is health and making sure that our health is controlled. After that, we have to, uh, and as that is going on, we have to uh, preserve uh, our our enterprises and the balance sheet of our households and corporations, making sure if you go bankrupt uh, as possible. But beyond that, we have to make sure that the money reflects our vision of what kind of economy we want to have in the future. And that's a more knowledge-based economy, a caring economy, a green economy, um, all these, and, and a more equal economy. <laughs> because as we said, uh, we don't want to go back to January that was a pretty bad economy, as we said in the beginning of our conversation. So that's why uh, uh, Build Back Better is really an essential part of what we ought to be thinking about now. You also talk about how uh, progressive capitalism is not an oxymoron, and, and you talk about the fact that this wealth inequality has become such a problem because we don't value creativity or innovation as much anymore. It's more a question of people making money, I don't want to say on the backs of other people, but I just said it. So instead of really valuing people who are doing something to contribute to the economy as opposed to people who might be perhaps a little exploitive. So um, that's part of this whole uh, progressive capitalism thing that you talk about. Very much so. And that goes back to what Paul said uh, much earlier, where he pointed out that there's this confusion that people who are wealthy know how to create wealth. Uh, some people who are wealthy know how to create wealth, but an awful lot of people who are wealthy are very good at exploiting others. Uh, and sometimes they're mixed together, those two elements. And uh, one of the themes of my book, People, Power and Profits, was that a large fraction of the wealthy people have gotten their wealth out of exploiting others, either through market power, taking advantage of vulnerabilities. We saw that in the financial sector, predatory lending, market manipulation, insider trading, uh, abusive credit card practices, you name it, they did it. So we that's the reality that we have to deal with. And uh, it undermines our market economy when so many people are doing things like that. And we've seen it. Uh, not only in the financial sector, we saw it in the Dieselgate the auto companies. Uh, 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 we see it in the food industry where they've been pushing uh, addictive foods that lead to this epidemic of childhood diabetes. And we saw in the pharmaceutical industry that pushed the opioid 
So actually, an awful lot of the people who are at the top have gotten there by exploiting others. That's not a wealthy economy. That's an exploitive economy. And that's really where progressive capitalism comes in. We want to use the power of markets, but to create wealth, not to take advantage of others. I want to just alert the control room that we were we are on standby, I think, for a phone call. But I want to go to Paul first to give you time to set that up. Paul, people think the economy is the stock market. People people think that the stock market's soaring and everything is hunky dory. And as you wrote in one of your columns, the stock market is soaring and so is misery. Why is it that people think? when only I think it's 55% of people in this country actually have any stock or are actually invested in the market. Where, where does this come from, that the stock market actually, is the I'm economy? Sure that, I'm not sure that people think that. I mean, it's um, uh, people who own lots of stock think that, that the stock market is the economy. It's actually one of the curious <laughs> statistics here is that the only uh, um, Donald Trump's highest approval rating uh, of the you know, of 2020, um, the uh, the uh, it was his, 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 the only the only point at which his disapproval dripped uh, dipped briefly below 50 percent was in late March, right at the bottom of the stock market. Uh, stock market was crashing, but for a couple of days there, it sounded like he was actually serious about taking on the coronavirus. Oh, okay, and that's when people started that's to say, okay. "Oh, maybe it's not so bad." Then he proved that he actually was that bad. But the uh, um, so. And no, I mean, this is a, a couple of points here. One is that stock ownership is very concentrated. Um, you know, something uh, close close to 90% of stocks are owned by just 10% of the population. More than half are owned by just 1% of the population. And, and the bottom 50% has nothing, basically no stake at all in the stock market. So uh, stocks are not a, a gauge. And stocks aren't even a gauge of how well... Um, the, the economy is likely to do and, and things like GDP, because, look, when you buy a, a share of Apple or Amazon, you're buying a claim on the expected profits of that company over many, many years. Um, and the, it hard, you know, the, what, what's going to happen to the – these are stocks that sell for 30 times earnings, 40 times earnings. That means that profits next year are only – couple of percent of the value of the stock. So stocks are not telling you either how the economy is doing right now or uh, how it's likely to do in the near future. They're telling you how people think those companies are going to be doing in some distant future and comparing it with the yield on other stuff like government bonds, which are yielding very little. So the stock market is a terrible way to, to judge the economy. It's just, it, it's, uh, um, it, and it has, the, by the way, track record is terrible. It's an old joke. Uh, uh, that the stock market predicted nine of the last five recessions, right? It's just the stock market is just uh, neither here nor there when it comes to things that actually matter to real people. Danny, I want to talk a little bit about uh, small businesses again and entrepreneurs because your daughter Hallie is an entrepreneur and she started a business at roughly the same age, 27 or somewhere in there that you started Union Square Cafe. She has, I'm going to plug it, uh, an ice cream and coffee shop, I think, in, uh, in New York City called Cafe Panna. And I mean, this is something that's also crushing the spirit of entrepreneurs in this country, which has been the lifeblood of the American ex economic experiment in many ways. How is she doing? 
She's doing great, uh, Jane. She just, uh, Cafe Pana just celebrated its uh, first anniversary. Um, and I, I'm going to just disagree with you for a minute. I think that that somehow this whole pandemic is stimulating more entrepreneurial spirit than, than you can imagine. And I, I was on a call uh, recently with some um, students from the Culinary Institute of America. That's the other CIA. And one of the questions, and it was kind of bittersweet because these these kids have, you know, in some cases gone into a fair amount of debt to get a culinary education. And the question was, you know, what do I do with my life right now? And, and what is the outlook? And I had two pieces of advice for them. One was uh, very different than I would have said in, in past years. And I said, don't go to New York City. There are pieces of this economy of the restaurant economy that are actually doing quite well in other parts of the country right now. Uh, but I said, get your footing. And then if you can hang in there for about a year and a half, you're going to find more entrepreneurial opportunities, even in a city like New York or any big city than you've ever seen before. And the reason is that the, uh, this, the real estate market has been completely irrational. The labor market has been completely irrational. And those are the two biggest expenses that uh, restaurants of any type, whether you're an ice cream store or a full-service Michelin-starred restaurant, those are the two biggest uh, expenses that you have. And especially real estate in, in big cities is going to come down. Look, all of our rents have been based on an expectation of yesterday in terms of tourism, business travel, office occupancy, and I, I hate to say it, but actually residents that are going to be completely upended. So if you can hang in there for a year and a half, um, what you're going to find is a, a city, not just New York, but a city in which a neutron bomb went off, and you're going to be able to walk into um, more talent, more uh margin opportunities because the real estate costs have to come down. And secondly, the the opportunity to walk into a built-out space, uh, meaning that, that your opportunity to make a return is going to be much greater. Howie uh, has that kind of entrepreneurial sense. She pivoted before any of my restaurants did into becoming um, a business that sold pints of ice cream, even when she couldn't have people in the store to scoop the ice cream. And she's been selling it uh, for delivery in New York City. She's been selling it uh, throughout the country via a platform called Goldbelly, uh, which delivers it overnight wherever you are in this country. And, you know, she has the kind of entrepreneurial spirit and I think tech know-how that is going to be crucial for this next generation of, of entrepreneurs. That's really encouraging to hear. But it, it brings up something else. One of your colleagues, the CEO of the company that owns Bryant Park Grill, Michael Weinstein, has said that he's out of New York. He's never coming back to New York. He's going to other places. And several people, a gentleman in New York named Harmon Skernick, had asked the question, um, what do you think the future of hospitality is in New York City at this point? You don't have t office buildings filled with people. You don't have tourists teeming around. Uh, what do you think? Well, it'll come back. You know, I think that uh, Michael Weinstein, who is a great pioneer in our industry, is an example of why, if, if you can just be a little bit patient, you're going to have better opportunities. Because if he does 
not come back, uh, there's going to be less demand for residential apartments. If he does not come back, there are going to be more talented employees on the market. If he does not come back, there, there's going to be another uh, many restaurant spaces and restaurant landlords are, are going for the first time in ages to become much more rational about that underlying cost. So I hope he does come back because he's a great restaurateur, but I have no question in my mind that we are a social animal. Uh, and I think that dining out plays such an important role in the emotional fabric of, of our community. It's where people go to feel better. And you get a quick hit for two hours and you leave feeling a little bit better than, than when you came there. I also think that, um, that I, I'm watching what's happening with these outdoor shanties uh, on the sidewalks all over New York City right now. And you have people clamoring, sitting outside with umbrellas when it's pouring rain just for the opportunity to have good food surrounded by other people. And that's not normal. So I do believe that when we can get our arms <laughs> around this is the normal. safety, yeah. <laughs> when we can get our arms around the safety aspects of this and just generate some consumer experience. So 25%, look, no one's going to make money at 25%. They probably won't even make money. We probably won't even make money at 50%. However, if you can get people comfortable saying, I did it. It was fun. The food was good. I could actually see people eight feet away from me at the next table um, and smile at real people. Then 50% will be safe. And we will get back to this. So I, I have a lot of hope. I really do. I think you should be a life coach in your next in your next incarnation. You're very upbeat. It's very it's refreshing right now. Uh, we want to take another video question, which is sort of tied into what we've been talking to. And this is from a young banker named Samir. Hi, my name is Samir from New York. Uh, my question is, do you think pandemic associated fears are going to have permanently negative effects on cities and therefore help more rural areas? Thanks. Paul, I'm going to go to you on that one. What do you think the answer is there? Um, I actually don't, I, I'm really not that concerned uh, or uh, persuaded by that. I mean, first of all, I, um, I, I remember 9-11 and there were a few months there when everyone was af afraid of flying and, um, uh, you know, afraid of afraid of, of tall buildings. And that didn't last because people became convinced that the, the danger was over. Um, and there's a little bit of an objective reality. I actually wanted to uh, weigh in a bit, a bit of New York patriotism here. Uh, you know, right now, New York City might be the safest place in America in terms of not catching the coronavirus. Very, very low positivity rates on testing. It's so people are behaving well in terms of masks, the outdoor dining scene, I understand it's not enough for restaurants to survive, but it's impressive as, uh, as heck. And it's, uh, uh, so people, people want that. They want, they want the, uh, the, the experience of urban life. And the fact of the matter is, as we're learning, right, you know, the, the highest case uh, rate of new cases per million people in America right now is North Dakota. 
You know, uh, the idea is that being rural is somehow a protection against a pandemic. No, it's not. Having adequate responses and 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 good social behavior is is what matters. It turns out that being a dense city was not the problem. The problem was actually crowded households in New York, and the fact that in the first few weeks we didn't know what to do about it. But no, I, I don't. I don't think this is. A, I, I am a little bit more concerned that that um, remote work, uh, uh, because it kind of to the extent that that companies shift to much more remote work, that a lot of the rationale for big, dense central business districts uh, will be at least eroded. And that's going to have some adverse effect. But I think that's going to mean people working at home from their their places in Connecticut, not, not people moving out to, uh, uh, to Wyoming. Well, again, but that's fine for people who don't have to report in, but but so many the preponderance of people do have to report in, and uh, it goes back to, I was stunned to see that a lot of people don't even link the health of um, the population with the health of the economy. They don't they don't make the connection that you have to get the pandemic under control before you can really start to get the economy under control, and. That, again, is an, a question that, that goes to leadership and it goes to confidence. It goes to Danny trying to tell people that it's OK. We have rapid testing. We can come, you know, we can come back. We can do things. And and that seems to be such a huge stumbling block right now to get past. Joe, do you have any any suggestions as to how we we sort of break through that? Well, you're absolutely right. And if you look, you know, one of the things uh, about this pandemic is it's been like a, a large number of, of uh, natural experiments. Different countries have responded to uh, the, the pandemic in different ways. And we've seen some real successes and we've seen some real failures, both in the controlling the disease, which, as you said, is absolutely the first uh, 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 necessity, and then the economic aftermath. So... Uh, the trust in government, trust and respect for each other, trust and respect uh, for science, uh, competence, all of these are absolutely essential. You look at New Zealand, they've done a fantastic job, uh, South Korea, uh, uh, Germany, a lot of countries have done a very good job. And of course, at the bottom are countries like the United States and Brazil. Uh, and uh, it speaks to both uh, lack of trust and lack of competence. Now, you say, uh, what should we do? <laughs> uh, to me, there's one answer. It all depends on November, uh, because we will be having a choice in November of which direction uh, we go. Uh, the, the issue here is not that complicated. Uh, other countries, we have the technology to have the test uh, and the rapid test. And actually, we need many more tests than than what Danny was talking about. I mean, we should be a able to have uh, tests every two, twice a week, three times a week in our in our colleges and universities. That's going to be really important. And you have large numbers of kids coming together. They can spread the disease. They can spread the disease to their parents. Um, we need much more massive testing and tracing than we've had. And that was at the core of, of the success in South Korea. 
we have to respect for science. And uh, that's uh, an essential part of the success in all the countries that have been successful. So we know the elements. And the question is, uh, it really is what's happening in Washington that is going to make the big difference uh, uh, going forward. And, and I, I'm not optimistic if we don't have a change in leadership in Washington. Well, we're going to get to those predictions. We're nearing the end of the show, but I, we're going to save, keep the powder dry a little bit for that. We want to now go to another video question that goes to something my, my father, my, we grew up in a household where the words debt and deficit were, were, were bad words. And that seems to have changed. So here's a video question that goes to that. Hi, I'm Bob Bailey from New Milford, Connecticut. This question is for Dr. Krugman. What factors could set off a steep rise in inflation and interest rates? And if that happens, how will the government service the debt without having to cut vital programs? Look, inflation isn't going to rise as long as there's a huge pool of unemployed workers who have, are in no position to demand wage increases, as long as there are large numbers of businesses that are struggling and are no, in no position to raise prices. So inflation is, is going to happen only if we have some kind of economic boom, uh, which appears to be very, very remote. And the, the question about servicing debt, I mean, the, uh, uh, it's hard to come up with another issue where uh, the ratio of fear to actual problems is so high. Um, you know, the United States, yeah, we have a unusually, by modern standards, high level of debt relative to the national income. It's around 100%, uh, which is comparable to where it was at the end of World War II. But uh, we didn't have a financial crisis then. Japan has more than twice the ratio of debt to GDP that we do, they can borrow it at zero interest rates or negative interest rates. Um, Britain came out of World War II with debt that was 250%. You know, country, countries that are viewed as being politically stable and can borrow in their own currencies uh, have enormous leeway to, uh, to run debt when it's for a good purpose and taking care of people during a pandemic is a good purpose. So um, on the list of things that I'm worried about, uh, either debt crisis or inflation, don't make it into the top 10 right now. I mean, they're just uh, uh, really quite remote prospects and it's much, much more important that we, that we spend what is necessary to get through this period of extreme stress. I am told that we have a caller. We have Kay on the line from New York City. So let's take that call. Uh, yes, this is Kay Koplovitz speaking. Uh, I have a question about the economy and the potential time period for recover of the economy. Even if there is a change of administration and even if there is an emphasis on putting the money into the market uh, to, for the economy, for the workers, whether they're gig workers or unemployed workers from corporations, how long can we sustain our economy even under those conditions, assuming that even vaccines, should they be developed and be uh, distributed and taken by, let's say, 
June of next year, how um, really vulnerable is the economy during this long next year period of time? Thank you very much. It's a really, really, really good question. Danny, I'm going to ask you, you've got thousands of people relying on your business. Um, what's, what's the answer? How long can they wait? Well, I'm surprised you asked me to answer this first because I'm not the macroeconomist um, or the Nobel Prize laureate on this phone call. But I'll just share that from a, a restaurant standpoint, if you did get PPP funding, and if you have held on to it as a as a non-forgivable loan, and if there's no more uh, money forthcoming in any type of relief package from Washington, then the answer for the restaurant economy is probably February at best. And I wish I could have a, a better answer, but uh, in, in, it could be longer. In, in our case, we still have uh, about 250 of our original 3,300 employees. So we're burning money every single week wow. because we made a choice to um, at least keep the, the, the chefs and the general managers and, and the directors and, and the people uh, whose talent, we just don't really uh, have the ability to go re-recruit. So the longest we can hang in there uh, solvent would be through February, March at the latest. I went to you first because you're the one who's dealing with people. You're putting a face on this crisis. And um, somebody had asked uh, another person, Richard Grousman, about whether or not you think that Americans are going to be willing to pay more for food so you can pay your folks a living wage. Well, there's two issues uh, with respect to that. And something, by the way, that we've been working on with policymakers is instead of just looking at this as build back better, how can we build back in a much more sustainable way? How can we use this period of time to look at the very things that our industry needs reform-wise if we are going to be uh, the kind of employer that can truly help the American economy? Look, the restaurant industry, probably second to none, even before the way before the, the gig economy, was the greatest first job employer in the country. 90% of all managers in the restaurant industry started uh, with their first time ever job in the restaurant business. 80% of all restaurant owners started where their first job was a job in the restaurant industry. And yet, as good as we have been historically at hiring people and promoting people, we have a major, major uh, problem in our industry, which is how the compensation system works. And I'm really sorry to say, but this goes back to right after slavery was abolished and the tipping system in this country was created. And it was created in two different industries, the Pullman train car industry and in the restaurant industry. Both of those industries had uh, lobbies in Washington. As a matter of fact, way before the more famous NRA was the National Restaurant Association, one of the oldest trade groups in the country, who successfully petitioned the federal government that we could get a hall pass from paying wages to our front of house workers because we could get our customers to tip them. And the, the, the system, which is a broken system to this day, was established where the minimum wage for tipped employees was zero. It has gone up 
to a whopping $2.13 an hour as the adjusted subminimum wage in 50% of the states in the country. In New York, that subminimum wage is $10.50, whereas the actual minimum wage is $15. Now, to answer the question specifically, what I would advocate for if you want to have an economy that works for all stakeholders, where I believe employers can thrive, I believe employees can thrive, is to do away with the subminimum wage. It's the we're the only industry that has that. As a matter of fact, in New York State, the subminimum wage was eliminated for any other tip profession, whether it's hairdressers or whoever else uh, got tips. And and yet, in the, <clears throat> excuse me, in the restaurant industry, we ha- we hung on to it. How do we make that now work? Well, interestingly, in New York City, just this past week, the city council passed a new uh, bill which allowed for a 90-day legalized surcharge at 10% that restaurants could tack on to the bill of their dining public. The purpose of that 10% was uh, to help restaurants pay for all the additional costs associated with opening during the pandemic. Um, Personal protective equipment, um, plexiglass, whatever, whatever it was. My restaurants are not going to opt to do that just because I just want people to come back, period, and I don't want one more surcharge. But an interesting idea that I heard about this week was to ask the city council and then presumably make it a a state uh, rule as well to extend that 90 days to an indefinite period of time and furthermore to raise the rate uh, of that surcharge of the potential surcharge from 10% to 15% for restaurants that agree to pay everybody $15 an hour. And what I like about that is that it would for the first time put our industry in a position, I think, to do the right thing, where tips could be shared amongst all employees, eliminating this awful rule which makes it illegal for cooks and dishwashers um, to and baristas to share in tips. It's illegal. Your tip can go to anyone who brought your food, but no one who prepared it. And and the really sad statistic that people need to understand is that 70% of the people in the kitchen who are tip ineligible are people of color. 60% of the people in the dining rooms of, of restaurants are white. And so every time we go out to a restaurant with the current set of rules, we are unfortunately and unwittingly perpetuating some of the problems that our society needs addressed. Whereas we could easily change this and turn dining out into an act of social progressiveness. Now I'm going to go to the Nobel laureates to find out, to go back to Kay's question, which was, how long can the economy wait, Paul? What do you think? Do we need a vaccine? What is going to be the sort of catalyst that gets us back into full full swing? You don't need a vaccine. If you, uh, if you have massive, uh, basically test trace isolate, if you have very, very widespread testing um, and contact tracing and isolate, then you can do, um, as Joe said, uh, some, some economies, New Zealand, Germany, have gone a long way back towards normal. Uh, it's be a lot easier if we have a vaccine. It'll make it, although the odds are that a vaccine won't uh, 
immunize us against the need for the, the test trace isolate regime as well. We basically need to accommodate ourselves to taking precautions um, and we need to get overall infection rates down very low. Probably uh, you know, New York City is closest in places in the country to that level, but doesn't have a, an adequate system to go anywhere close to a full reopening and, and the rest of the country is nowhere close to that. But if you can get to that point, then we're capable of doing a very rapid recovery. I mean, the, the United States, um, uh, you know, we, we lost 22 million jobs in the first impact of the pandemic. And then we got half of them back very quickly um, because some, partly because some states had reopened prematurely and that was a big mistake, but also because uh, private uh, entrepreneurs adapted all of those, uh, you know, all of those uh, sidewalk dining that you're seeing in New York, that's a, uh, that's showing creativity in dealing with a difficult situation, and and given some adequate leadership and an infrastructure to keep this thing under control, uh, we can come back, I think, very quickly. This is not this is not like the last economic crisis left this overhang of severe debt, and and it 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 was going to uh, even with the best policy which we didn't have uh, was going to be a long slog this could be a quite quick recovery but only once we get the the um, the pandemic under control and um, uh, but there's a bifurcation I think what 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 Dan's saying the, the um, if we don't uh, have it under control and we won't in, in you know uh, in the next few months and we don't provide further aid, then things can get much, much worse because a lot of businesses that have been hanging on uh, are going to go under, and a lot of jobs that have been maintained uh, will. There'll be a lot of layoffs, so the the the, the chance of so we either have the possibility of a, a rapid, you know, this the the the, uh, the rocket ship recovery that that we were promised and didn't get is still possible, uh, or we have the possibility of falling off a cliff, which I have to say worries me a lot. Not a good choice. Well, let me ask Joe, because I made sort of a joke about what kind of recovery this is. And people argue that, well, the administration did say, as Paul just said, that we were going to come rocking back and that it was going to be a robust V-shape springing right back. Joe, how, two things really I'm asking you to, to address. What kind of, I mean, with the haves and have-nots and that disparity, how, what kind of recovery is this? And once again, do we have to have a vaccine before we really come rolling back? Yeah. Uh, the point that uh, uh, Paul made is absolutely right. There are countries that have basically gone back to near normal, not fully normal, but near normal uh, without the vaccine. But good testing and tracing, uh, uh, good confidence in the government, respect for each other, wearing masks, uh, all the all the other kinds of things that are part of containing uh, the spread of the disease. New Zealand, South Korea, um, uh, uh, Germany, all the uh, have done it. So, so it's not necessary. It will make it obviously a lot easier, especially in the United States, where a lot of people don't have respect for wearing the mask. And uh, but the other thing about 
we the vaccine we don't know how effective remember we have a flu vaccine that uh, we have to get it every year and it's not 100% effective so if we have a vaccine that's not 100% effective certainly older people like me are going to be worried and so we are going to continue uh taking precautions uh until we have uh, the uh, uh, uh a really fully effective vaccine. The second point I'd like uh, to make is that the idea that we would have a V-shaped recovery roaring back was predicated that on the idea that the interruption would be very short. You know, uh, the the CARES bill was designed under the notion that the whole thing would be over in six, eight, ten weeks, and that's why everything ended the end of July. Well, that was a fantasy. I always thought, you know, anybody that understood epidemiological models knew that that was not likely to be the case. The longer this goes on, the harder it is going to be to recover. And, and this is really uh, the most important part, if it goes on and there isn't the kind of assistance that is uh, necessary, uh, then the damage will be deeper. So we've already doing a lot of damage. The failure to have sustained unemployment insurance, the failure to have a comprehensive program, including state and local governments, to help our universities, to help our educational institutions, all of these are doing uh, long-term damage. The longer the the money isn't there, the more the damage. And damage, pretty clear. Danny put it out pretty forcefully. Uh, Balance sheets of households, balance sheets of companies, bankruptcies, when bankruptcies occur, uh, it it leads to a a loss of organizational capital. Um, It leaves a a, a legacy that takes a long term to recover. So Paul is right. In the beginning, we weren't in the state we were in 2008, where there was real devastation to the bank's balance sheet and and to the economic balance sheet. But as a result of the failure of the administration to do anything beginning July, and we're now in September, uh, and it looks like there are not enough goods going to be done, uh, no matter what, what they're proposing is still not enough. the damage is going to mount, and that means the recovery is going to be more muted than it otherwise would have been. And the Federal Reserve is uh, talking about uh, at least 2022 before we're back to where we were. And a lot of people are saying that may be a rosy scenario. It all depends on what happens in the coming months. We're going to turn to future and election, but Danny, I did want to ask you, several people wrote in because they're concerned. They know that you have Shake Shacks all over the world. You have, I think, 250 and 15 countries. Out of curiosity, did they take the hit that you took in New York? The globe, the- uh, Yeah, in New York, yes, yes. Um, Shake Shack was able very quickly to pivot to a takeout and curbside pickup model because it's the type of food that never depended on a reservation and a maitre d' and your favorite waiter or waitress taking care of you anyway. And so Shake Shack has been able to uh, come back incredibly well. That said, Shake Shack's been a fantastic uh, 
bellwether as to what's going on around the world. We've seen, uh, because we're in the Middle East, we're in Asia, uh, we're in Great Britain, um, we're in, believe it or not, Russia, Turkey, and we have had a chance to see which countries have spiked, have done better. We're in mainland China, Hong Kong, um, and we've also been able to see which cities uh, in this country at a very early stage are suffering from spikes. So it's uh, not to mention fires and hurricanes and, and every other uh, climate-related uh, issue that we've been facing in this country. But uh, with the exception of New York City, which remains slow to come back for any uh, food service business. And by the way, one thing a lot of people don't talk about is that in addition to the concentrated uh, population in New York City, the vast majority of New Yorkers who work in the food service industry take public transportation to get there. And in fact, even a great deal of patrons take public transportation, even if it's taking a train from the suburbs uh, to get into Manhattan. And so that's one of the reasons that Manhattan itself is just going to take longer than other places. If we still have the caller who's been very patient calling in from Sherman, Connecticut, we're going to take that call right now. Yeah, this is Stephen from Sherman, Connecticut. So I want to know if the economy would still be a deciding factor in the upcoming election, or is it becoming decoupled from the outcome? Or is it becoming what? I'm sorry, that I didn't get the last part. I'm sorry, is it becoming decoupled from the outcome? So I'm just trying to understand whether or not decoupled. It's oh, okay. Still, yeah, still as it's usually the economy. Previous years. All right. Let's ask. Uh, it, it usually is the economy that drives the election. Paul, what do you think is going to happen this year? Um, it's the economy is going to be almost uh, uh, neutral um, here. I mean, it's uh, uh, people are, you know, there, there isn't going to be a whole lot of news. Uh, we're going to get one more job report. And what we now know is that job reports, I never paid attention to this before, but when you get a job report for September, it's actually for the second week in September and it comes in October. So the last jobs report we'll see before the election will be from what was happening a week ago. Uh, it's, it's not going to be more than a week ago. It's actually going to be nothing at all about where, where the economy is going. Um, I think voters, I can't see anything that's going to happen, that's going to change voters' minds. And right now, although people give Trump better marks than he deserves for the economy, it's not a large margin. Um, and most people are saying it's that's not decisive. People are, people are going to vote on handling of the coronavirus. They're going to vote possibly on handling of race relations and other things. Um, this is... Uh, uh, this is going to be... I think the economy is going to matter less in this election than in any election in recent memory. Okay, well, I'd like to ask you about one thing though, because I've never understood this. This has been such a wonderful experience to finally be able to ask real economists these questions as opposed to just speculating. So I'm gonna ask you, Paul, because I know you've written about this. Why is it that Republicans always get the cred for the handling of the economy? It, if you look at the stats, if you look at the data, if Joe Biden is elected, he would be the third consecutive president to come in in three decades and have to, how do I put this, clean up what the predecessor had done theoretically. Why is it that this perception persists that Republicans are better at handling the economy? 
Okay, uh, so I think I addressed that partially earlier, but let's just say this. Partly it's the belief, again, that, that rich people know what they're doing. Partly it's that business media lean Republican and also do a lot of economics coverage. Um, and there's also, some of us talk about the hack gap, um, that if, uh, if, you, if you look at um, economists who, and other things, other uh, uh, experts as well, but economists, um, uh, you know, Joe and I have, everybody kind of knows where our politics are. You didn't hear either of us say, oh, President Obama is the greatest thing that ever happened. He's the greatest invention since sliced bread. We were willing to criticize, to say negative things. On the other side, there's an awful lot of sycophancy on the part of, of commentators so that you do actually uh, uh, have some uh, asymmetry in, in this. But yeah, the, the, the actual fact is that um, the track record has been that the economy has consistently over the past 50 years done better under Democrats, so much so that the people who've, who've calculated those numbers uh, who say are, are baffled. We don't quite understand why the economy does so much better under Democrats, but it, it's, uh, you know, Trump has presided over a kind of average economy for, he's a better than average economy for a Republican, but kind of an average economy for a Democrat. So you're saying what it comes down to is when you're rich, they think you really know. That's, that's sort of what I got out of that. But thank you for, a, for explaining that. I had a rich uncle and people used to ask him for advice on their marriages. And there was, uh, there was no reason to believe Was he any that, good? About that, but because he was rich, they figured he knew about everything. He really knew. All right. We have a final video question that really brilliantly sums up what we've been talking about. So... Danny, I'm going to give you the first crack at this. We're, we're almost out of time, but we'd like to go to this final video question right now. Hi, this is Gordon Fowler, President and CEO of Glenmead Trust Company. What would it take to not only get us out of this economic disaster, but to do it in such a way that the, there was broad-based prosperity and the average American saw a real improvement in their standard of living? Danny, you have, you've touched on that quite a bit in terms of uh, what you think should happen. But to make the economy work for everyone, not just those at the top, if you were, if you were in charge, what would you do? I would love to see uh, more adoption of the stakeholder model that says, we call it in our company, we call it enlightened hospitality, where you realize that every organization in the world has the exact same five stakeholders and that you actually can reject what I learned uh, in the one economics class I took at Trinity College, which was the Milton Friedman doctrine of putting the shareholder first. And instead, you can actually create a virtuous cycle where by putting your employees first and your customers second and the community in which you do business third and your suppliers fourth and your investors fifth, not as a totem pole where the investor is at the very bottom, but because, in fact, the best way to drive better investor outcomes is first to have driven better employee outcomes. And then you have a staff of people who are exceptionally motivated to take great care of your customers, who are then exceptionally motivated to spend more money, which gives you more money to invest in your community, which means your community is rooting for your success which means you have more money to buy better products. And if you do your job really well, you should have more money for your investors, 
who then have more money to reinvest in your employees so they can get raises and advances. And I think that that stakeholder model in which the only way for any stakeholder to win is for all stakeholders to win. You break that anywhere, you've broken the whole thing, but you start it with the employees first. Which is what you always done, I know. I, I wanna go to Paul to find out what his, what's his optimal model to try and make this a more equitable economy. Oh, you know, I think you work on multiple fronts. The fact that we, we know a fair bit about what works. I mean, it, um, other countries, no, no one does everything right, but we see, look at, at the Nordic countries, the uh, Denmark or, or Finland, um, uh, they have um, uh, much higher wages uh, for service workers, uh, among others. They have much better social guarantees. Um, they are, by all accounts, the happiest, most, you know, highest life satisfaction in the world. Um, it's and they do it all. You know, everything uh, works. They uh, they have slightly lower GDP than we do. Again, that's because they take vacations. Uh, their productivity is the same as ours. So this is not. I mean, it's, it's politically very hard, but you just do a bunch of things that that are all in the direction of uh, a little more social justice, a little less raw profit maximization. And they add up, they accumulate, they reinforce each other. This is not such a hard thing to do. And, and uh, um, it's, it's a uniquely, it, it, we should ask it what it is about our society, our political system that keeps us from doing things that we know from the experience of other countries and to some extent from our own experience actually do work to make people's lives better. Joe, I'm going to give you the last word and ask you how confident you are that we're going to get through this unprecedented chapter and that your grandchildren, I don't know, I don't, you have three or you have, you have grandchildren, Dick. are going to reap the benefits of a more equitable economy. How, how optimistic are you? I am, but let me first answer the question that you asked to uh, uh, Danny and Paul. So uh, the first answer is, I would have more businessmen like Danny. Uh, that would be the first uh, part of the recipe. And then I would ask the question uh, in a way that, uh, Paul, uh, why is our society not producing more businessmen like Danny? What is it about what we're doing that is creating uh, too many businessmen who are uh, too selfish? Partly it's ideology, Milton Friedman's ideas, uh, just put shareholder value. So we have to change our, our education system, including what is taught in the business schools. More broadly, Public policy is really important. We have to write the rules of the market economy uh, in ways uh, that create this uh, fair, more inclusive, uh, more society with more shared prosperity, uh, uh, antitrust laws, better labor leg legislation, better corporate governance. And we have to have tax laws. I mean, we are a peculiar society where those at the very top pay a smaller fraction of their income uh, in taxes than those below. And we have to have uh, ex uh, uh, public expenditure policies. We are the only advanced country that doesn't recognize access to health care as a basic human right. Now, you asked the question, how optimistic? I'm actually fairly optimistic. Uh, the reason I'm optimistic uh, is twofold. Uh, one, if you look at polls 
about where people uh, care about, you know, what do they want? Do they want a significant increase in minimum wage? Uh, Do they want health care for all? Do they want uh, everybody have access to higher education? Do they want, you know, you list the things that I call progressive capitalism or whatever name you give it. People really want these things. And if you look at younger people, the fraction who want this kind of uh, society, who want to deal with climate change, who who really want uh, uh, a, 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 a kind of progressive agenda, is overwhelming. So the real question is, will our democracy be able to deliver what the vast majority of Americans want? Uh, and I'm optimistic that that will happen, but it's very clear uh, it's a battle, and it will depend on... Uh, voter turnout in November. It has been an absolute privilege to talk with the three of you. I am so grateful that you've donated your time and talent today on behalf of our charities. We thank you so much for that. We also want to thank you out there for joining us. And we hope you'll be back to listen next time when we'll have another all-star panel. No Nobel laureates, but we will have with us Mayor Pete Buttigieg, Washington Post columnist Jonathan Capehart, the first transgender state official elected in this country, Danica Rome, and we'll have the first lesbian Native American congresswoman, Sharice Davids. They'll all be here to talk about the ongoing battle for LGBTQ rights. The live virtual town hall will take place on October 11th. You can learn more and register to join at conversationsonthegreen.com. The Conversations on the Green podcast is a partnership with Connecticut Public Radio. Our producer is Jay Holt.